Welcome to lesson number two of business school. Today's lesson is titled growth versus profitability. This was kind of the, the genesis for starting this, right? Like talking through this big shift that's going on in the consumer startup space in particular, a shift towards optimizing for profitability rather than just growth which sounds obvious to everybody else in the business community for the last several hundred years. But because of the rise of tech companies, you know, over the last three decades, there has been a focus on, on growth at all costs because tech companies can get wildly profitable. And the same thought held true for consumer product businesses as well. Some have done it, a lot of them have not, and now there's a shift to focus on ones that can be profitable. Absolutely. It's the consumer businesses that have been bitten by the bug of tech. The e-commerce digitally native businesses that are able to were able to live in the world of tech and be judged in the world of tech and raise money in the world of tech. But 10 years later, it's up for debate whether or not you could call them tech companies. So tracing this era that we're speaking to on this podcast, 2010 is probably the most relevant year to start. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Warby Parker is founded in 2010, Bonobos, Everlane, Glossier, all around that time. It wasn't until four years later that Casper was founded. Your company, Burrow, was founded in, what was it, 2016? Yeah, um, yeah. Launched to the public in 2017, kind of? Yeah, that's right. One of the things that I wanted to speak about right off the bat is the kind of gold rush era and how we would describe how this all began. From an outsider's perspective that was witnessing it, what was that era like and, and why do you think it happened? Really, it's like 2010 to 2016 in a lot of ways. That kind of gold rush era could do no wrong startup. What do you think the combination of factors was to create that gold rush? So it's interesting today, I think if you look at direct-to-consumer brands, the one theme that really ties them together besides the fact that they sell directly to consumers as opposed to going through big retailers is they're focused on customer service. They build these more modern brands. And by brand, I mean like how customers perceive you, the brand voice, the photography, all of that, right? But the best ones are known for providing the best customer service. If the incumbents don't allow you to, to return anything, they allow returns for 30 or 100 days. If anything goes wrong, instead of having to wait on the phone, you can get in touch with people by text, email, call them, whatever, right? Like the focus is on how do we make our customers as happy as possible. But if you back up for when they first started, it's not some like secret sauce. It's just the internet. The internet was being used to sell. And what changed previously when you launched a business, a consumer products company, you had to sell through stores, right? And even if they were your own stores, you grow by, by opening more and more stores and then people hear about you and they come and, and they shop. But that made the growth rate incredibly slow. Like if you look at how long it took Nike to build their empire, it, it took decades. To build Nike today would probably take three years. And it's because you can sell to everybody at the same time. And you, you get on digital marketing on the internet and you can target people across the country. There's an increase in access to customer data and analytics that allow you to reach people faster, get real-time feedback. You can test which ad works. So instead of putting up a billboard like you know decades ago and then hoping, or a TV ad and hoping people then go and buy your product, 
you can see real time what types of consumers will respond to this advertisement that I give them, right? What percentage of them have clicked on the ad and then gone and purchased the product. So getting that real time feedback, getting in front of more people faster, the internet enabled all of that. It also reduced the cost to start a company. So in the very beginning of the internet to launch an online you know, e-commerce site, you had to build everything from scratch or the tech was just very expensive. Now you can, because of Shopify and, and big commerce and others, you can just open up an account and start taking orders. Like they have all these templates that exist. So anybody can launch products. You can also launch products on Amazon and other online e-tailers. And so it's just made it so much simpler. And the ones, the companies you just talked about, Warby, Bonobos, Everlane, you know, they were the first to do it. And so I think that gave them a huge competitive advantage. To build off that, when these companies that had the competitive advantage started, it was kind of a perfect storm for them to have tech-like growth rates because first ones to take a consumer business, brand it well with customer service, free returns, all of the benefits that you just mentioned, and go online, improving their margin, improving their access to customers immediately. All of those things came together to create a perfect storm for consumer businesses that are digital first to experience tech-like growth. And what happened was the venture community that was previously trying to find the next Facebook and Google and Airbnb was really attracted to that because of those growth rates and because they were, quote, tech-enabled. And so the venture capital community just started to open their pocketbooks and were doling out super high tech type valuations and couldn't unload enough capital to these businesses. Like they just had more capital to give than they knew what to do with. Now, I also think an, an important thing here is like a lot of those early businesses that were in that first group were really, really good operators as well. So that was part of that perfect storm. Well, yeah, I think you had to be of a certain caliber to have the thought to do it and have the confidence in yourself because it was uncharted territory at that point in time, right? And so for Neil and Dave at Warby to do it, they had to be incredibly intelligent, right? And know that they could build a business online when there wasn't a blueprint. Fast forward to now, and it's so much easier and there's more tools available, right? So like it's, it's just easier all around. And so everybody can do it. But yeah, I think you had to be strong in the beginning, but I don't think anybody who was weak would have done it in the beginning, if that makes sense. Right. They were innovators, right? And yeah. for, they were rewarded for that innovation. And then there was a perfect market opportunity that nobody else saw because it wasn't really a market opportunity that existed. They created it in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Which is why everybody says like, oh, there's all these Warby Parker of X companies. And it's funny because the only thing, I mean, some of the companies are incredibly similar in their business model, but for most of them, the only thing that they have in common is that they sell online, which is like, that's just, it's not like copying Warby. That's just getting on board with how people shop, right? Yeah, absolutely. We have written down here, you mentioned that in those early days, the growth rates were dwarfing even SaaS companies. Is that true? Even early stage SaaS companies that were considered high growth, the early direct consumer businesses were dwarfing that growth? Yeah, they, they were. And that's probably why they got these consumer brands got such big valuations early is because of a, you know, a consumer or not consumer, but just a SaaS business, right? An enterprise software business, you, you have recurring revenue. So it might take a while to build up $100,000 a month, $200,000 a month of, of revenue. But as long as your churn rate, which is, you know, the 
percentage of people that unsubscribe to your product, as long as your churn rate isn't too high, you have that revenue almost forever, right? And so you're just building on it. And so the more and more scale you get becomes compounded on prior scale that you've achieved. So yes, the early years, consumer brands were outpacing them. uh, And that's where you see the super high valuation multiples for tech companies where it's like the company may only be doing $10 million a year in revenue, which for a consumer products company now is like, you should be able to reach 10 million in revenue by your second year. And if you don't, like you're a failure and 10 million a year in recurring revenue for a SaaS company, that might take them three to five years to get to. But the difference is as they continue to grow, like if, if you're a business that can handle 10 million a year from a SaaS business, you can then maybe scale to 20 million a year the next year. And then that 20 million is like, you have that every single year into the future. If you're a consumer products company, you have to go out and acquire those new customers every single time. Ah, leading us to the crooks of the issue, transitioning from growth to profitability. So when it was grow, 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 that early group of companies start, they experience massive growth, they experience huge valuations, they have more money than they know what to do with because the venture capital community is really trying to get on the ground floor of something new. But the strings that come attached to venture capital money are the expectations of a return in a shorter timeline than other investment dollars. And so that's probably the main driver to the growth over profitability in those early years, right? Yeah, there's two pieces to that. One is tech companies a lot of times exit before they get profitable. Like you just, you've scaled to a certain part of the market and you're spending a ton of money on growth and then somebody will buy you for your tech, your IP, or they'll buy you for your customer base or a variety of reasons, but you can still get a, a really great exit multiple for that. In, in consumer products or just in consumer in general, having scale means that you are winning market share and you have momentum. And so the faster that you can gain as much market share as possible um, what you're trying to get to is, is get to the point where you have a halo effect from your customers. So as you're growing a business in the very early days, you're acquiring your, your early adopters. So those are people that are, you've basically designed the product or service for them. They love it. You don't have to spend a lot of money to convince those people to buy your product. And so that's what you get initially. And those are your evangelists and they're going to go out and talk to their friends and, and get them to buy your products too. And, and you get some growth from that. But then when you advance beyond that, it's, okay, how do we acquire the mass consumer, right? How do we get not early adopters to buy us? And then getting them, there's diminishing returns. So you might say, I can acquire 100 customers a month for a cost of $10 and then 200 customers a month at a cost of $12. But what that really means is that the first 100 customers were still 10 bucks each to acquire, but then the next 100 were 14 bucks per customer. And so the blended rate was 12. And so you keep going up and up and it's like at some point, the marginal cost to acquire a new customer is really high and sometimes is is unprofitable. The primary way that you're acquiring those customers is social media. Yeah. Digital marketing. Digital marketing, which is paid acquisition marketing primarily through Facebook and Google. Yes. Right? Yes. All Facebook and Google. You're trying to get people who are searching for related products, categories, you funnel them in through Google, and then you're serving people who look like your customers based on a variety of different characteristics and demographics. You're serving them your ads to drive them to your website. And so you're trying to grow as fast as possible. You're trying to grow to a certain point. If you get big enough, then you have enough customers that they are telling enough other people that you have this like broad brand awareness, right? The cheapest form of acquisition is customers telling other customers about your product, right? It's, it's 100% free. 
And so when you, when you have enough customers and enough brand awareness, which only happens when you're very big, um, like Casper in New York City, right? Everybody knows Casper in New York. And so then they have an, a level of efficiency in New York where they no longer have to educate you about their product. They just need to stay top of mind. And that becomes a lot cheaper from a marketing perspective. And so if you get big enough, it becomes like your acquisition costs are like, they start out low, they start spiking, and then you get big enough and they kind of start tailing down. And so investors are like, we want to fund fund that growth, get as big as possible and get to that point. And then hopefully when you get to that point, your cost of marketing compared to your, you know, the revenue you're bringing in is, is profitable. So it's a window that you're up against. You are basically racing against your valuation, the window of how much money you have in your bank account, how long you can hold on to customer acquisition costs being profitable or not being unprofitable so that hopefully you can get to this nebulous inflection point where you're quote big enough where there's a network effect and your customer acquisition costs go down. And so now that you're a market leading brand, is that basically how you could describe it? Yeah, it, it is. And so there, I would- So fucking crazy. I know, I know. And so it, in theory, you're profitable from day one. You know, if you sell a product for a thousand bucks and it costs $300 to make it and a hundred dollars to ship it to a customer, you have a 60% gross margin. So you, you have $600 left. If then it costs $400 to acquire each customer- you're making 200 bucks per product that you sell. If it costs you $200,000 a month to run your business, like pay salaries, rent, et cetera, then you need to generate $200,000 worth of profit from sales to break even. And so if you're making $200 per customer, you need to acquire 1,000 customers a month. So if you're acquiring 1,000 customers a month in that scenario, you are breaking even. So in your early days, even if you are profitable on a unit economics basis, meaning like per customer, not including the cost to pay rent and pay your salaries and everything, you're losing money because you just don't have enough scale to offset your monthly operating costs. So in your very early days, it doesn't matter how profitable you are on a unit economics basis, you're still losing money. And then as you get bigger, so once you scale to that point, what you're hoping is that your unit economics don't decrease or don't like get worse to the point that you can never offset your monthly operating costs, which by the way, your monthly operating costs grow. Your monthly OPEX grows rapidly as you're scaling your business rapidly. And, and so what happens for a lot of these companies is early on, they're burning money because you're just not big enough. And then later on, you're burning money because you're no longer making money on a unit economics basis. And some companies run into a, a period of time a lot of them, including us, including Burrow back you know, two years ago, where we were spending so much on marketing that we were actually, we had lost money every sale that we made. So the more customers we acquired, the more money we lost, um, which is not a good position to be in, right? Like that's just like- But you have to do it because you're still chasing that inflection point where hopefully your costs go down because of the network effect. Is that what you were thinking during that chapter? Yeah, it was. And it was like, just grow at all costs. Another thing that's interesting that happens is you have a lot of, a lot of venture-backed companies are generally valued as a multiple of their annual revenue. And so if, you're, if your revenue is growing really fast, you can typically attract new investors. Now, it doesn't really matter about your cost structure. I mean, it matters to some people, but in general, at least in the mid, you know, from 2010 to 2016, 2017, maybe 2018, it didn't matter 
how much you were burning, it mattered how fast you were growing. Cause people just figure that like, as you get bigger, you know, we can lower your cost structure, right? We can improve your gross margins, decrease the cost of products, decrease the cost of shipping, and you'll get that halo effect like we were talking about. So your marketing will get more efficient too. So it would just get as big as possible. When you hit that scale, a lot of these problems will get solved for you. And so as, while you're growing, investors give you more money. And if they're going to give you money, they're going to value on your revenue. So it's just like a cycle of like, how do we just jack up revenue as much as possible? And we'll deal with costs later. Now, when you run into trouble is for a lot of consumer brands, the growth doesn't last forever or it's lumpy, right? Like you might have 10x year over year and then 2x and then 4x and then 0.2x and then 7x or whatever, right? It's it's lumpy. It's not like a SaaS company where you're where it's just like exponential growth because you keep all your customers. You have to go out and acquire new people and you have challenges as you're expanding into new markets or new products or whatever. So yeah, I got to interrupt because I got to ask the question, which I feel like I've actually never asked you. During that gold rush era, when you were raising money and it was easiest, right? Burrow's growing really quickly. You're having explosive growth. You get massive valuations. You're being crowned the next big consumer brand. How easy was it to raise money? And two, you said not that many people care about the unit economics. How true was that? Like how quick were those conversations? Did they open your books and really dig into your unit economics and do a lot of homework? Or were they like, whoa, look at that growth rate. Let's keep it going. Like how easy was it at its easiest? It was very easy to raise our series A. Our seed round before we had much data at all, which we'll get into in in another episode about fundraising, but our seed round was just kind of like scrapping for checks. And we had Dave on our last episode. He and I kept in touch throughout the early days of our companies. We were both like We'd take a $5,000 check from somebody. We'd take a $10,000 check from somebody. Like, and if somebody wanted to give us money for our company, it was like, give me the money. I'll, I'll put it to use. For the Series A, for us, we had recently gone from doing like $100,000, $200,000 a month uh, in revenue in 2017 to by the beginning of 2018, we were approaching a million dollars a month. And we hit this like growth rate really fast but we were still tapping into, I think, early adopters. So the acquisition costs were really cheap. So our unit economics were actually fantastic. Our gross margins were awful, but that was always a story of like, you know, we, I mean, when we started the company, we had to produce with a small manufacturer in, in Mexico City and then moved to Mississippi and then North Carolina. So that was just like a constant evolution. We were like, we know we can get to a certain gross margin level. We're not there yet, but assuming we, when we do get there, our unit economics are going to be insanely good based on our current acquisition costs. And that's standard for startups, right? To have a margin that you are expecting to improve because you're improving your processes, you're finding new factories, you're improving your materials, you're all all that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so basically to sum it up before we pivot to the actual transition from growth to profitability, basically what what I have written down in my notes here, profitability was always a few years away. All these companies were always planning on getting acquired. And I wrote down sort of like the American dream, only a few people get rich, but everybody thinks they will, which is, I think, a classic way of, of thinking about all these entrepreneurs, including yourself, are dreamers, right? And that's why they have the guts to do what they're doing. And the hope is that you'll get acquired and make millions of dollars, or maybe you'll go public, but very few do. And so even today, most of those companies are either still private or out of business I mean, in 10 years. Yeah, there were there have been a ton of companies that just ran into a wall 
either the the cost structure like we talked about burning too much money caught up with them so if your growth slows down and you and then you can't raise more money and you're not profitable you run out of money if you can grow really fast unprofitably and get massive and then figure out how to get profitable the hope is that you have a large enough revenue base that like once you just focus on cutting costs and whatnot and can still have some decent growth you'll you'll build a very profitable business right having a 10% profit margin on $2 billion a year is a lot of money, right? But a 5% profit margin on 300 million a year, it's not that much, especially if you're not growing very fast. And so investors either say, I'm okay with you continuing to grow at all costs, and I hope you'll get profitable in the future, which may work. Or they say, prove that you can grow fast while staying profitable. And the company, so I'm going to list off a couple of companies here, like Brandless, Fab.com, One Kings Lane, Jawbone, Blue Apron did go public, but then you know things changed. That's been more. It's they've had a little uptick since COVID, but in the interior design space, Home Polish, Lauren Wolf, two luggage companies, Blue Smart and Raiden. I mean, there's tons. I mean, the better question to ask is who has exited successfully? Who has figured out this formula or the secret to building a large, high growth, profitable business that's worth getting purchased and like. Dollar Shave Club obviously did it. Peloton is not profitable yet, but I think they they proved to public markets that, I mean, A, they grew so big, they're doing billions in revenue, and then they proved that their business model can be profitable. And then there's been a, like Bonobos sold, but wasn't profitable. Casper went public, impressive exit, not profitable. Yeah, it's so interesting because the brands that we listed at the beginning of the conversation that really set up the gold rush era they're still seen in a, many of them are still seen in a very positive light, but they're all still private. A lot of them are. Yeah. Like Allbirds, Roberts, Bombus, Warby still private, Glossier still private, Casper's public, but it didn't go super well. And, or it's up in the air. It's a question mark, but even like Everlane still private, you know, and it's not that you have to sell, but if you look at it from a venture capital perspective, they would have hoped that these businesses would have given them a return already if you look at it from an internal operator's perspective, a founder's perspective, and I would pivot this question to you. If you look at it from a founder's perspective, it's not a failure. There's no harm in running a private company for a long, long time. You just have a bunch of investors that are sort of hoping that you pay off at some point. At what point is it incumbent on a founder like yourself to exit? Can you stay private forever as long as you control your board? And could you stay private for 20 years at Burrow? What would keep you from doing that? We could. I mean, there's a variety of ways to do it. With Dollar Shave Club, for instance, most of the investors who cashed out when they were bought for a billion dollars were new investors. Most early investors had sold their shares on the secondary market to new investors who came in. If you can successfully do that, if there's demand to invest in your company, but you don't necessarily want to dilute anyone and you don't need the money, you can just sell and sell these new investors on like, okay, we're going to get you a, it's a lower risk proposition for them, right? Because you've already built this big company and you have all this, you know, a long track record. So then it becomes more of like a, I would almost say like a growth equity kind of deal, right? Where they're looking for like a two to three X return, but that extends the runway of how long you can stay private for. Let me rephrase that. So what you're saying is when new investors 
want to get in to a company before an acquisition or at any point, one of the options is creating a secondary market in which new investors buy stock or equity or options from old investors at the new valuation, obviously, so that the old investors can make returns and they limit their downside because they just want to get their money. And then the new investors can get in without diluting the existing investor pool. It's basically an investor swap. Yeah, totally. And in fact, like you look at companies like WeWork, there were people I know for a fact that cashed out at really high valuations, right? Early investors. And then when this when the valuation came tumbling down, it's like, okay, they I mean, kudos to the people who got out. Like they got out for much higher than the company's actually worth, which is insane. And then the the other option, which is I've actually never heard of anybody doing is you say, we're going to stay private and let's agree on a certain return. I'm going to pay all of you out. If I have a hundred investors, I'm going to pro rata once a quarter or once a year, I'm going to pay you out until you earn X amount of dollars. And you're all going to, if you all agree to that, because there doesn't seem to be some sort of like, we don't want to sell the company. Yeah. Is that called a liquidation preference? A liquidation preference is when you will get at least a certain amount out of the company in a sale. So that that works a little bit differently. That's like I'm leading around and I'm going to I'm going to invest 50 million dollars for a third of your company, right? So your company we're saying after this investment is worth 150 million dollars, I own a third of it. Um, and I have a 2x liquidation preference, which means that the first 100 million dollars back on any sale comes to me. So I guaranteed 2x my money. Um, and so then if the company sells for $110 million, that investor gets $100 million, then everyone else gets $10 million. Got it. Which is why Bonobos' exit was not great for uh, a lot of investors because they had raised over $150 bucks. They sold for just over $300 million, which is amazing. Like you were saying, as a founder or operator, like it's incredible to sell a business for a couple hundred million bucks. But if you were an investor, you're looking for much higher than that because the later stage folks had liquidation preferences, which means the early stage folks are splitting up the leftover returns. Interesting. Okay, back on topic, we're talking about growth versus profitability. Uh, if we were to categorize the headline things that caused this shift that we're all now seeing come out in the news, we're all reading. There's obviously WeWork as a big example, but we're just starting to, articles are just starting to come out that are much less favorable to the direct consumer community and are starting to ask real questions about business model, margin, careless young founders, internal turmoil. The venture capital community is now starting to put more emphasis on profitability versus growth. I think that this transition started a while ago. We're just now starting to read about it, but I think we can both speak to the fact that this transition has been happening for quite some time. What do you think the headline things are that started to cause this transition? Well, some of the companies just started to fail, right? Like, or, and ran out of money. And so then people started to become a little bit wary of, okay, well, now we got to dig further. And investors were saying, we got to dig further into these companies to make sure that their unit economics are, are solid and profitable. And then there just haven't been any exits. Like you, you go long every year that goes by and there's fewer and fewer exits. You know, you're like, well, shoot, how am I going to exit this company? They can't all go public right? Only the really, really big ones can go public. So I think it was, it was just that, like people are running out of money or, or you get a lot of these companies you didn't even hear, you just stop hearing about them, right? And they, maybe they got to a series B and they're doing 10, 20, $30 million a year in revenue. And then you just stop hearing about them. And it's because they, they ran out of money. 
and, and if they weren't growing fast enough or they were growing so unprofitably that eventually investors just say like, okay, I'm not giving you more money because I feel like you're just going to lose it all. And the reason why it's hard for people to turn it around is because when you're getting a lot of money, it's really easy to spend it. You start spending it on really stupid stuff. Like you're hosting these crazy expensive events and you're doing uh, marketing campaigns that are just wildly expensive or like you're not anywhere big enough to advertise on TV, but you're blowing 100K a month, 200K a month on TV ads. And a lot of it just comes down to really inefficient marketing spend. And you hear about this in the news, like, People opening up stores and spending like a million or two million bucks on a build out of a store that's the store itself was only going to generate, you know, maybe $100,000 a year in profit. And it's just really dumb. Like the companies that don't have money. So this is what's really funny is um, you'll hear about a lot of a lot of businesses that say, oh, you know, we, we never raised money. We bootstrapped. Right. I love a lot of those people They're They all tried to raise money and just couldn't. That's the truth of it. Which, but you know what it did is it actually did them a favor because if you can figure out how to build your company without raising money, you become incredibly efficient and you know how to run a, an actual business. And so you either have to figure out how to grow it without losing money or you fail. And so if you do grow it without losing money, like you have really sound fundamentals in, in your company and, and you develop these really good uh, habits, right? Totally. That's such an interesting thing that I want you to speak to a little bit more directly, which is you said that it benefits them in the long run potentially because they've learned how to grow efficiently. They've learned how to grow based on margin, good marketing, creative ideas, strong team, being lean, right? There's the flip side to that is though, they were never able to go through the gold rush era and achieve a certain level of scale that now is a foundation for them to grow to be an even bigger company, right? So there are pros and cons to both. And I think Burrow is such an interesting example and such a compelling example because it's represented both of these things. But if you weren't able to raise money early on, you're probably a pretty small company today, which is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. You're just a pretty small company, right? If you were able to experience that gold rush, you were able to raise a lot more money and may have run up against this inefficient chapter where in order to continue to fuel growth, you needed to raise more money, which is fine because you were able to do it. Some of these companies weren't, some were, but you have to give up more of your business, right? So you have a larger business, a larger foundation that you can build upon now if you were able to raise money during the gold rush era. But the downside to that is you had to give up more of your company. So you own less of your company. But if you weren't able to raise money, you're growing more efficiently, certainly, but you have a smaller base to grow from now. And it's going to take you a lot longer to get to that scale. That's right. Is, and I think that's such an interesting way to think about it because would you rather be a big company and own less or would you rather be a small company and own more? To me, the ends justify the means. And it's so hard to say otherwise. And I remember having this conversation with one of our investors about would you rather be Casper or Tuft & Needle? Tuft & Needle sold for 200 million bucks and they, for the most part, bootstrapped. And they'd taken like a small friends and family round in the very beginning, but that's, you know, minuscule dilution. And then they grew it and sold it. And it's like Casper is way bigger than them and has a much better known brand, a cooler brand, which, what does that mean? I mean, it depends on what, what's valuable to you, but would you rather own 10% of something that's a billion dollars or 100% of something that's $200 million? I mean, the math says you'd rather own 100% of $200 million. Now, if at some point money is, you know, become the difference between being worth 
hundred million dollars and $200 million is not that much. You might care more about prestige and like that you built a bigger company, but Look, I'm no mathematician, nor have I ever raised big money for a venture-backed startup. So I'm just asking the question of if the money at the end is the same, which one is more appealing? It's just interesting because to your point at the very beginning of the episode, you said it takes a really, really long time to grow a lot of these brands in the traditional way. It took Nike many, many years to get where they are today. But if they were to have started in the gold rush era or even today, and they were had access to unlimited capital, that growth would be a lot faster, potentially. I mean, look at Allbirds. Yeah. Allbirds is exactly what they'd be. Like Allbirds, how long did it take them? Like what, six years to get to a billion dollar valuation? I'd say for, for, for Burrow, we were unfortunate, but fortunate to enter our inefficient stage right when the kind of market shifted to being focused on efficiency. And so that forced us to really focus on for every dollar we spend, how do we generate the most return there? And I don't just mean on marketing, but across the company, like what are the initiatives that we have to focus on? And what are the initiatives that we just can't afford to spend time on? that allowed us to kind of refocus our priorities and map out our path forward in in a different way. It wasn't like, oh, like we can do no harm. Let's just spend a bunch of money and scale the business. It was like, no, for our business model, what's going to be the best strategy? And for us, it was like in furniture, we always knew we wanted to be a furniture brand. We wanted to sell every product, every category in the home. Um, But we started with one sofa and that's what we were scaling. We did 3 million in the first year, 14 million in the second year. That was 2018 when we were pretty inefficient. And then the growth slowed down. And that's when we were focused, refocused the strategy. And we knew the strategy was to launch other products. So when you sell in furniture, you spend all this money to acquire a customer. And then people will come back to you over and over again. And it's not because people are super loyal to furniture brands in general, but because people don't have a lot of confidence that their furniture goes together if you mix and match across brands. And so they'll come back to you. And so if you only sell one product, you're not getting anybody coming back to you. Now, that being said, we pitched that to investors. Like we're going to, this is, this is our roadmap for expanding all these categories across the home. And they were like, well, we've heard this before. A lot of other consumer product companies tell us, you know, we sell toothbrushes and now tomorrow we're going to sell floss and it's going to be like half as big as the toothbrushes. And then it wasn't. Or we sell this backpack and now we're going to sell this handbag and the handbag's going to be wildly successful. And then it's not. From our perspective, we're like, well, you know, every single furniture brand sells every type of furniture. So like, that's not weird for customers. But what was unproven is that like, we invented a new category for the sofa, a modular sofa that ships via UPS, but is also high quality and requires no tools to put together. Like nobody had ever done anything close to that. And so our brand promise was kind of like every product that we launch has to be incredibly innovative. And so investors just didn't trust that we could do it. And uh, we've now successfully launched into several new categories, rugs, coffee tables, side tables, shelves, uh, sectionals. We launched a, a sleep kit, which turns your sofa into a twin bed. Every single one of them has been super successful and that has increased the amount of money people spend on their first purchase with us. It increases the percentage of people who come back and buy more and it increases the amount of money they spend when they come back. And meanwhile, our acquisition costs to get them in the door and become a customer in the beginning, that has started to come down because we've just been focused on efficiency. And so you do that math, like those are all arrows moving in the right direction, which has tripled our profitability per customer. And if we hadn't, I think if, if someone had just written us another check, like a big check without any sort of like pushback, we probably wouldn't have refocused our efforts so quickly. 
And so I think it's just a function of like, what position are you in as a business when you have to make that shift from growth to profitability? And if you can do it, great. But for a lot of people, the answer is they can't. And for even more companies, I don't think that was ever a possibility. Like some companies are literally selling dollar bills for 90 cents and scaling and telling you that, oh yeah, when we get big enough, we'll increase the price to a dollar ten. And people are like, no, that's not gonna work. And I think investors just kind of realize that at some point that like anybody can scale a business to doing $10 million a year with digital marketing, but then growing bigger than that really requires having like a very solid business strategy for building like a large company. You can't just scale one product infinitely. Yeah, absolutely. And on another episode, I think we'll dig in even more detail into Burrow and the different phases that you guys went through, because I know personally that there's so much more, especially about when you went through that inefficient phase and how you pivoted out of that, how painful that was. And that is a testament to where you are today, but certainly not an easy transition to wean off of the venture money that you've been living on for a long time. No, it, 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 was, it was not easy. It was also like we made the decision to focus on improving our manufacturing processes and reduce costs. And we doubled our gross margins in that period. That was in 2019. We made that decision prior to needing to get to profitability faster. And so it was just like we were very fortunate that when the, when the money started to like dry up or become harder to get, we had already doubled the amount of money we made pre-marketing costs which is so helpful, right? Yeah. We, w- we wouldn't be here today if we hadn't done that. Yeah, absolutely. We could go on forever, but I do think that we're going to touch on so many of these other topics in future episodes. So I think that's probably a good place to wrap. Yeah, you're right. There's a, We're going to dig into many of these topics in much more detail in, in other episodes, but... Yeah, I think it was a really great overview of, of that transition from growth to profitability. And using Burrow as an example, I think is actually a really helpful color. And so... Let's wrap there. If you are wondering how you can support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode. Class dismissed. Class dismissed. (laughs)